Guys, great to, great to be in this session with you and uh, appreciate Pastor Joel's challenging us right on the focus of our lives. You know, focus changes everything, doesn't it? I grew up working on a dairy farm when I was 14 years old, got put on a tractor with a plow behind me, and the farmer said, if you're going to cut a straight furrow, you got to have your eyes focused on something on the other end of the field, because if all you look is at the tractor tires, it's going to go like this. I, I grew up driving motorcycles and um, enduro, motocross, hill climbs, trail rides, back roads, little bikes, light bikes, and uh, sold my last motorcycle when we had a family when I was in 1978, and in, in 2007, I bought a Harley, and I decided probably ought to take a safety class. I would recommend that to anybody that rides a motorcycle, and in that safety class, really incredible teacher teaching us how to handle a bike basically said there's, there's two times that it's most dangerous on a motorcycle, an intersection or a corner. And more single motorcycle accidents happen on a corner than any place else, usually because they go in too hot, they're too fast, but also because they lose their focus. And one of the things he taught us is that before you start turning the motorcycle, you make your head turn. You turn your eyes where you want the motorcycle to go, and then you go that direction. And man, I want you to know where your focus is, where the eyes of your heart are, is really going to determine so much about your life and what you do. And so when we're going to be talking about a man's role as a spiritual leader in his home. And guys, if you don't have a Bible at your table right now with you, there's a bunch of Bibles back there in the racks. And I want to just encourage you, go grab a Bible and get one. And if you didn't get a copy of the notes, uh, somebody at your table, there's extra notes that are out in the back um, in the gathering space. Everybody's got to have a Bible because we're going to be looking at some things that are really going to help you in terms of your focus. Man, one of the things that we understand from the Bible is that God has called a man to be the spiritual leader of his home. God's called a man to be the spiritual leader of his home. And right now, some of you are just saying, that puts me under tremendous pressure because I'm still trying to figure out my relationship with God like Pastor Joel was talking about in this last session, and now you're telling me I need to be the spiritual leader of my home. Man, here's the truth. You are the spiritual leader of your home. The question is, are you leading well with good focus or are you leading poorly? Because your leadership will influence the quality of your family, the direction of your marriage and your kids is going to be determined by you. Listen, when I, was, when I was a boy growing up, I didn't grow up in a church that taught the Bible, and I knew very little about the Bible. I mean, I it was scary how little I knew about the Bible. I literally thought as a boy, when you, when you say Jesus Christ, that Christ was his last name, and Jesus was his first name. And I found out later in studying the Bible that Christ really means Messiah. It means the anointed one. It's talking about the fact that Jesus had the three Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. Just say those with me, okay? Prophet, priest, and king. And the prophet was anointed by the Holy Spirit to be God's mouthpiece. The priest was anointed by the Holy Spirit to be able to offer sacrifice and lead God's people in worship. And the king was anointed by the Holy Spirit to, to lead and protect and rule the people. Now, men, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you bear the name Christian, which means that you're to become like Christ. And there's a sense in which Christ is prophet, priest, and king. You also enter into those roles because you are his witness and you are to be living and teaching his word. You are a believer priest, according to what Peter says in 1 Peter, and you are to be ruling for Christ in terms of your life as a vice regent to him. So when it comes to the family, think about this. The three offices of a man and his role as a spiritual leader of his wife and family are those things. The family prophet, what does that mean? It's talking about the fact that he is going to be speaking God's truth into his family. Speaking God's truth into your family. Men, you need to be the primary teacher of your children and of your wife that you are to be God's mouthpiece, representing the truth of God to her. You're also to be the family priest in the sense that you are to pray for them and you are to represent them and you're to pray over them and to, and to manifest that you are bringing them to God. The priest brought the people to God. That's what the priest did. 
and to be the king. Now, men, don't go home and tell your wife, I'm the king. Pastor Jeffrey said so. And my big, my big recliner, that's my throne. I hope she'll put a, a Burger King uh, crown on you and really humble you if you do that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you being the leader of your family that protects and provides and leads. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. But friends, men, I just want to tell you, let's use the shoes for a minute. Men wear their work boots to work, and they get home, they put on their slippers. Men at work, there are men that are leaders at work, and they work hard, and they put in a lot of jobs, and they get home and say, I deserve a break. So I'm going to turn on the TV. I'm going to watch my favorite channel. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, but I don't want to lead at home. They take off their work boots, and they put on their slippers. Men, I want to call you, don't do that. Now, how many men are here that are grandfathers? I want you to stand up for your grandfather. Stand up. Your grandfather, stand up. Give these guys a round of applause, okay? All right? Okay, sit down. If you are a father, I want you to stand up. If you're a father. Wow, look at this. These are, man, man, just stand here for a minute. Do you realize how many children are represented in this room? How many children are represented in this room? That what happens to you spiritually this weekend can impact your children greatly? Men, you are a spiritual leader of your home for good or for bad. I'm not telling you to become it. I'm telling you already are it. And if you don't lead, that means they're not being led. If you're not being the mouthpiece, the prophet of God to them, then they're not probably hearing from God at home. If you're not being the priest praying over them, then who is? If you're not being the king leading them, then who's leading them? You are to be like Christ to them at home. Would you be seated, please? If you're not yet a grandfather or father, I want you to stand up right now. You're a young man. You're a teenager. You're a college student. You're not even married yet, perhaps. You're not a father yet. Men, I want you to know, listen carefully. You say, hey, this doesn't pertain to me because I'm not a dad yet. Listen, most of you will be sooner or later. And you need to learn now what it means to be that kind of a man. So tune in. Don't tune this out. You need this. You will need this in your life so you can be seated. Okay. The problem is there's some myths that make men miserable and they lose their focus. And they're, you know, they're, they're just not plowing right. They're just not plowing right. Uh, by the way, when I got out in Sandusky, Ohio, pastoring, I was using a farm illustration on a Sunday, and a guy walks up to me after, and he said, uh, hey, Jim, you said you worked on a farm. And the farm I worked on in upstate New York, I mean, we had very little flat land. It's all Catskill Mountain, and we had a little bit of what we call river flat. So the fields are pretty small and rocky and, and, and up and down. This guy says, I want you to come out to a farm. I'm going to put you on a real tractor. And I come out there, and this guy had a big, it was, it was, the brand was white, and it was, had, had two tires, big tires in the front, two tires in the back, split in the middle. It had an air-conditioned cab and a computer in there, and it had a 12-bottom plow. And he says, go ahead, but just get your focus, men. Get your focus right. Now listen, there's some, there's some myths that men believe they get their focus on the wrong thing. Here's one. To be, succeed means to have a dynamic career. To succeed means I've got a dynamic career. Men, there are men in here that are tradesmen, that work with their hands, that are plumbers, that are roofers, that are uh, work in construction and work in electrical, and what they do is just as important as the executive. Your career is not what defines your success. There's medical doctors and there's lawyers here. There's businessmen and there's people that work with finances here. And all of those callings can have significance. But I want you to know, your career cannot define your success. Why? Because someday you're going to retire or get fired or get laid off. And if that's your significance, man, it goes down the tubes. So your career cannot define your significance. Here's a second one. Because the truth is that work alone cannot uh, provide success that matters. Now, take your Bibles, men, 
And turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. You say, I have no idea where Ecclesiastes is. Go to the middle, turn to the right, okay? Go to the book of Psalms, go a couple past that. Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. By the way, Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. Solomon was the king of Israel. He had more wealth, more power, more education, more of everything that you could ever want in your life. And Ecclesiastes is his book talking about how empty all of that was without God. Men, hear me. Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. A little boy said, why would he want all those porcupines? I don't understand. No, those were his wives. He had a thousand wives and concubines. He had more gold and silver. He had more building projects, more power, more influence than you could ever want. And he said, it's all empty. Look what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to begin at about verse 4. He said, this I saw, that all toil, work, and skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. And he said, this is just vanity. It is empty. It's smoke bubbles. It's a striving after wind. He goes down a little bit later, and he says in verse 7, I saw this vanity, this emptiness under the sun. One person, a man, he has no other. He doesn't have a son, a brother. But there's no end of his work, his toil. But his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? He said, this is vanity and unhappy business. Let me just sum, sum up what we just read. Here's a guy. He's working hard. He's climbing the ladder. He's doing all of that, but he has no relationships. He's working like crazy, but he has no relationships. And Solomon says, it's all empty. But watch what he does next. Very, very interesting. Verse 9. Two, do the math here, are better than one. He's going to do this several times. Because they have a good reward for their toil. Now he's talking about working at relationships. Do you see that? He just transitioned from working at work to working at relationships, verse 9. And he says two are better than one. Why? Because in verse 10, if they fall, the one will help up his friend. But the one that's alone when he falls, he doesn't have another to help him up. Working at relationships mean, men, that when you get discouraged, when you get defeated, that when you fail, you got someone to pick you up. Okay? Working at relationships means you get support. He said, again, if two lie together, they, they keep warm. But how, how can one keep warm alone? One of the shocking realities of getting married is being in bed with my wife and having her cold feet come across and touch the back of my thighs. I mean, nothing quite like that. Woken up in the middle of the night. Why? Because two lying together keep warm. You go on a camping trip and you're out in the middle of, the, of a really cold place. Guys huddle together to keep warm. Man, I want to tell you, this world is a cold place, impersonal. And when men get together like you're getting together now, there is warmth. There's support. There's warmth. And then look what else he said. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. There's protection when you have relationships. Somebody comes against you, two walking together are going to be more apt to be protected than a person alone. So you have support, you have warmth, and you have protection in relationships. Solomon is saying, listen, if you just work at work and that's all your focus, it's not going to cut it. You need relationships. You need to work at relationships to have that support, to have that warmth, to have that protection. But then he says this, a threefold cord is not easily broken. He said two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, and then he says three. Why did he just change the math? Two men together support. Two men together get warmth. Two men together get protection. But then there's a third cord. It is when two men together wrap their lives around Jesus Christ. And that's the focus of your relationships. Listen, men, get what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying, I had my ladder up against the wrong wall. And it didn't bring meaning and purpose in life because I had the wrong focus. Work alone can't produce success that matters. Second, here's another myth. I'm doing this for my family. So men will say, well, I work hard and I provide for my family. I provide a house and I provide clothing and I pay the bills and I do that. Men, that's good and you ought to do that. But that's not enough. That is not enough. It is not enough. 
man, I want you to know that, that, that is, that's a role that we ought to have to be providers in our family. But really what our families want is more of us. More of us. I was reading a book one day about fathering. And it told a story about a very famous man who, in his, who took his son and spent a full day with his son fishing. Years later, the son, who also had a significance in his life and his career, wrote about that day in his journal. In his journal, he said it was the best day of his life with his father when his father took him fishing. Somebody as a historian got a little curious and knew that the father also kept a journal. So he went back and he read on that very day what the father wrote in his journal. And guess what the father wrote? Wasted the day I just spent it with my son fishing. See, what our family really wants is more of us. More of us. That's really what they want. Man, I want you to know that when you, um, when, when you get to the place where you retire, you think all those work relationships really are going to last? If you took a cup and you filled it with water, okay, and you put your finger into that cup, and then you pull your finger out, there's no hole left, guys. No hole left. When I left being the president of a college out east, the day I announced that I was going to be resigning from the role after 14 years of leading that college, I actually took a cup, a glass cup, in front of me, in front of all the vice presidents and administrators, and I said, guys, I want you to know how important I am. See the hole? That's how important I am. What I didn't know, man, is that most of those relationships, unfortunately, were one-sided. That they wanted me to raise money and wanted to do certain things for them. And I can count on one hand the number of phone calls I've gotten from that team in the last three years. You know why? Because that's not the relationships that matter the most. And that's one of the reasons I'm back in the church, because I believe the relationships here matter a lot. That's why I want to invest this stage of my life in this church and make a difference. Why? Because it's relationships that matter, man. It's the relationships that matter. See, what our family really wants is more of us. So you look at the pictures and say, what are the memories that are going to last? Man, it's not going to be your career. It's going to be these kind of memories that you make with your family. It's doing this kind of stuff. That's what makes a difference. Last night I was with Craig Fair. Craig, where are you? Right there. And Craig has shown me a picture on his phone of his sons with him on top of a mountain called the Third Chimney. And you look at those men and say, that's the kind of memories that are going to last, men. That's the kind of pictures that are going to make a difference. Here's another myth. Money's going to solve my problems. Look over the page in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 to 12. Money, if I just had more money, Pastor Joel talked about that. If I just had more money, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, Ecclesiastes 5.10, nor he who loves wealth with his income. It's also empty. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see him with his eyes? Man, I've had the privilege of having friendships with people who God has entrusted with great wealth. And i got to tell you this. One of those friends was talking to a man, happened to be an African-American man he was talking to. And, and this, this black guy said to him, can I just ask you a question? And this, this guy's a multimillionaire. He said, um, what's it like to be rich? That's a quick question. My friend thought for a minute, and he said, it's complicated. It's complicated. You know why? You don't know who your friends really are. And everybody wants something from you. It's complicated, he said. Money doesn't satisfy it, man. Doesn't satisfy it. 
You know, the secret of contentment is not getting more. It's, it's being satisfied with what God provides. Paul addresses people of wealth in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this is what he says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The author of Proverbs, chapter 30, says this, God, give me neither riches nor poverty. Because if I'm rich, I may forget you, and if I'm poor, I may curse you. Man, understand, if you think purpose and focus in life comes from money, it doesn't solve the problems. It actually sometimes creates greater challenges. And once we earn above a certain level, money creates more problems than self. Listen, if God entrusts you with wealth, then you have a greater stewardship responsibility. Men, some of us, God has not entrusted with wealth because he couldn't trust us with the wealth. You hear me? Some of you, God has not entrusted with wealth because he can't trust you with the wealth. You'd make idolatry out of it. You'd lose your spiritual focus. No amount of success at work can compensate for failure at home. No amount of success at work can compensate for failure at home. It's exactly right. So, men, I want you to think with me about this big idea right here. That no, no matter how successful you are at work, failure at home can't compensate for it. And it never will. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. This is a, one of the, a handful of verses in the New Testament directed to fathers. I want you to take a look at this because I want, I want to help you with this for the rest of our time together in this session. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. Paul in Ephesians gives a whole lot of detail to family relationships and he gives it in kind of a condensed form in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, verse um, 20, after telling children to obey their parents because it pleases the Lord, he addresses the fathers. And look what he says. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Some translations have it this way. Do not exasperate your children. Do not embitter your children, lest they become discouraged. The, The idea there is of a crushed spirit. He's saying to fathers, do not... Do not provoke your children, exasperate your children, lest they lose heart, lest they become discouraged. There are men sitting right here tonight that if we were to take a roving microphone and say, tell me the story of your relationship with your father. Some of you would talk about a father who was a godly example and was a mentor to you who loved you and taught you and shaped you and was a a very important role model in your life. But some of you would have to acknowledge, I'm still struggling with a father wound. A father wound is where your father frustrated you, your father discouraged you, your father crushed your spirit. And for those of you who have a, a relationship with your father that was a good, healthy relationship, it's very easy for you to think about God as heavenly father. But for those of you that don't, you have to almost turn it inside out and say, God's very different than my earthly father. I just got to say this to all of us, though. No matter how good your father was, God's greater as a heavenly father. And no matter how bad your father was, God is much more loving and faithful and good and kind and patient than you'd ever imagine as your heavenly father. So the greatest need of our children, the greatest need that they have is encouragement. 81% of teenagers today reveal that they are depressed. And there's there's a need for encouragement in the heart of every child, of every son and every daughter. You see, sometimes as fathers, though, here's here's what we figured out. It's mom's role to be the soft one, the encourager. My role is to toughen them up for life. Right. I'm the drill sergeant. She's the nurse. I'm the, the one who's really getting them ready to be tough. Man, no, you need to get them ready to be tough and tender. 
And you need to show both sides of that if they're going to be tough and tender. You need to show them how to be strong, but also how to be a servant. You need to show them both of those. Both of those. You see, there's a need for encouragement. You know what encouragement is, men? You write this down. Encouragement is providing courage in the heart of a child. It's what it means. You're infusing courage to help them face the realities of life. Now, guys, I'm not talking about the kind of encouragement that we have in our culture today, that everybody gets a trophy and everybody's a winner. I don't like that. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about not just catching them doing something wrong, but catching them doing something right. It means that you're paying attention to them. That you're able to, to, to encourage them in that way. Sometimes encouragement looks like this. When my son Dan, we have, a, we have a son and two daughters. When my son Dan was in high school, he thought he wanted to be a medical doctor. And I was encouraging that because one of my closest friends is a medical doctor. And so Dan says, I want to be like Dr. John. I want to be a doctor. And I said, Dan, I'll do all I can to support you. Until he get in, got into the early grades of high school, and I saw that he struggled in the science classes. And I'm just watching us quietly praying for him. And I sat him down in about ninth, 10th grade, and I said, Dan, if you decide you want to be a doctor, I'm going to do everything I can to help you and support you. But God usually gives us the abilities to do what he wants us to do. And if you're struggling in science now, you're going to really struggle in pre-med. And it may mean not getting into med school. And I don't want to see you start a course that's going to really discourage you. But if you choose to go that direction, I'll do everything I can to help you. But maybe you need to just pray about what else. And he said, well, you know, Dad, I really like my paper route. I said, well, that's good. You can't make a career out of it, but it's a good thing. <laughs> he, had, he, he took a paper route, and he doubled the paper route. I said to him when he started his paper route, just do four things. To, uh, provide a, a dry paper in the same place. Don't walk on the lawn and always be respectful. Do those four things, and you'll succeed. And he doubled his paper route. So he started taking classes in the business program at Kentwood High School. Marketing, entrepreneurship, economics, management, all that kind of stuff. And he aced every single one of them. Encouragement sometimes means you're studying them to know, listen, blow on the flame in this direction. Not to fulfill your dream as a father, but to help them discover God's calling in their life. It really matters if you do that. Here's some ways, though, that a... That a um, Fathers discourage their children. One is a lack of structure, overindulgence. That's taking off the boots and putting on the slippers. And you just aren't engaged in their life, and you're not, there's no structure, there's no discipline, there's nothing that is there. It's just running wild. Dads, you can't do that. You, you can't give the school or even the church your responsibility for training your children. You cannot do that. So lack of structure. Listen, one of the ways a child understands love is when a father cares enough to be able to help them in terms of behavior. And if you don't do that, then they think you don't even care. That's one of the things that happen. Here's another one. Too much, too much structure. So controlling that there's no way for them to be able to learn to become more responsible. And so the tendency is to provide too much structure where there should be freedom and too much freedom where there ought to be structure. Does that make sense? So it's, it's finding that, that appropriate amount of structure. Now, men, there's some charts that we've handed out here, and I'm so appreciative of, of um, Pastor Luke and Carolyn and their help on this, this is a tool that we are in the middle of developing right now as a church. And I want you to just take a look at this. This has come out of a lot of years of helping parents and parenting. And I remember working on this with my kids when they grew up. And I want to just, just hit the high sides of this for you. If you look at the chart, the, the, um, on the left side, it's all control. And on the bottom, it's the years of their life. And, and the goal of parenting is to recognize that by the time they're 18, you want to have a responsible adult. Isn't that true? I mean, you really don't want them to live at your address the rest of your life. Right, Joel? Amen. All right. You want them to be able to be responsible. By the way, in the state of Michigan, when a child is 17, they can leave home legally. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's the law. 
So you only have that much time to be able to raise a responsible adult. But here's what happens. There's fathers that are like, like hawks, and there's fathers that are like owls. I'm a hawk. I'm going to watch every move they make, and I'm going to pounce on them every time they do something wrong. And you wonder why they develop rebellion. There's other fathers that are wise like an owl, and they understand there needs to be a process here of them developing greater responsibility. So if you look at the dotted line, that's parental control gradually giving them more responsibility. And then you look at the, the dash line, that's the child be assuming more responsibility for their choices. And, and the blue line is more dependence on God. Ultimately, what you want is that they are depending upon God, right? Does that make sense? Look at the very top. A child will move from dependence to a season of striving for independence. That's the most natural thing in the world. And as a father, you just got to understand that when your kids hit later elementary or junior high, there is within that that desire to start moving towards taking responsibility for themselves. And they move from dependence to independence. Now, some of them, <laughs> some of them, if you have a strong-willed child, they start moving at independence at about year two. I mean, really. I remember with one of our kids uh, teaching them to roller skate. With uh, one, of our, one of our kids, when I taught them to roller skate, they had a death grip with both hands on my wrist. and said, don't let go, Dad. And another one of our kids, when I taught them to roller skate, they said, Dad, I can handle this. And they had never roller skated. And I'm going around the roller skating rink like this, catching their backside every time they fell. You're going to have kids like that. But listen, striving for independence leading to interdependence. Well, they recognize not only their dependence upon God, but upon you and others. Hey, let's face it, man. The day your son or daughter gets married, you no longer have control or authority. So you know what my goal was as a father? I wanted to have influence when I no longer had control. Do you hear that? I wanted to have influence when I no longer had control. Well, the only way you can have influence when you no longer have control is to be gradually giving them more responsibility, more dependent upon God, and you're moving from modeling to coaching to supporting to delegating. There's a whole lot more there, but I, I hope that gives you some food for thought about what we really need to be thinking about when we're thinking about the role of a father, the role of parenting. Man, it's a gradual thing where you're trying to teach them and train them and equip them and to help them. So that's one of the ways that we do that. Here's another way that we encourage our children, spending time with them. Most kids from their fathers spell L-O-V-E-T-I-M-E. -E. I'm serious. We bought our first home in Sandusky, Ohio. It was a split-level home. And I told my wife, I want the basement, the lower level of that home, the family room. I want soft furniture. I don't want anything the kids can get hurt. And I goes, that's going to be where I'm going to play with them when they're kids. And, and, and I would play, you know, horseback ride, and I played Nerf football and the Incredible Hulk. Pretty ugly to think about that, but I was Incredible Hulk to my kids. They'd climb all over me, and I would growl and stand up, and they'd squeal with delight. And I'd read books to them in that place. And, and when mom was getting dinner, I was spending time with them. See, guys, I never thought that parenting was my wife's responsibility and not mine. And when I walked through that door, I wanted my wife to know the reserves had been called in. <laughs> and I'm there to be a dad. And I'm, I'm going to make that my focus. I'm going to make that my focus. So encourage them. Spend time with them. Guys, if you do not have enough time for your children, you can be 100% certain that you are not following God's will for your life. Hear me. If you don't have time for your children, you can be 100% certain that you're not following God's will for your life, that you're doing things that God does not want you to do. So spend time with them. Pri make a priority to do everything you do based on who's going to be at your funeral, guys. Who's going to be at your funeral? Now, what does that mean? Well, man, I, I want you to know that the people you work with probably won't be the guys crying at your funeral. Anybody here recognize the name Dr. Wilbert Welch? Anybody here know that name? Raise your hand high if you know Dr. Welch. Okay, many of you don't. 
Dr. Welch was the president of Cornerstone University that developed that school from a small little Bible institute to a college graduate school and seminary, including its location of its campus and everything that happened. And one day at a conference, I heard Dr. Welch stand in front of a group of preachers and say this. He said, I just attended a funeral of a man that I greatly respected, and I was amazed at how few people were there. And I asked myself the question, I wonder how many real friends I will have at my funeral. And I decided to change, because I realized I didn't have very many real friends. And I decided the rest of my life I want to cultivate friendships, and he did, to the day he died. Listen, man, your family, they're the ones at the funeral you want crying for joy because of your life and influence, but because they're going to miss you greatly as well. You can encourage that. You can, you can show creativity. You can show uh, in terms of what you do with them. Men, listen, how many of you like traveling with your kids on a long trip? It's <laughs> exactly what I thought. You know what I did when I traveled with my kids? I always kept a kickball and a Frisbee in the car. Seriously. A kickball and a Frisbee. And when they were awake, I stopped every hour for 10 minutes. Threw the Frisbee. You say, you don't make much sense? Oh, yeah, when they slept, man, we made tracks. But when they, otherwise, you know what happens in the car? Elbows, frustration, they just have all that energy. I'd, I'd, I'd run them like crazy for five to ten minutes. We'd get back in the car and we'd drive another hour and they'd be fine. I'd read books to them while my wife would drive. So be creative in that. Be flexible. Be flexible. Encourage them with words, men. Look, look with me at, at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. This is one of the, the, major, the major passages that impacted me in terms of my fathering. And, and I don't think there's any passage more significant uh, in terms of how we need to be impacting our children. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is what is called the Shema O Israel. That's the Hebrew word for hear, O Israel. And Jews all over the world today quote the first part of this daily. Orthodox Jews do. Verse 4. Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's just talking about who God is. But then, so he's basically saying you need to know God. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You're to know God and you're to love God, he said. And then in verse 6 he says, these words that I've commanded you are to be on your heart. Now just wait a minute here and look at this. God says, to adults, to fathers, know God, love God, hide God's word in your heart. And then he says, out of the overflow of your relationship with God, you're to teach your children. These words, you're to teach them diligently. That was the word using for sharpening a sword on a whetstone. Repeatedly, diligently teach them to your children, he says. Teach them to your children and talk of them. And watch this now. When you're sitting in the house, maybe at a mealtime, when you walk by the way, or we could say today when you're riding in the car, when you lie down, bedtime, one of the most responsive times for children, when you rise up, starting your day with the word of God, bind them as a sign upon your hand, controlling all you do, and as frontless between your eyes, controlling all you think. Write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Let your whole house be just drenched in bibline. That's what he's saying. Let the word of God permeate you, your relationship with God. You know God, you love God, you hide God's word in your heart. And in the teachable moments of the day, you are teaching your children. Men, please see this. The primary teacher of children in the Old Testament was the father, not the mother. The primary teacher of children in the Old Testament was the father, not the mother. The primary teacher of children in the New Testament is the father, not the mother. The mother assists the father in his role of teaching the children. You get that, men? Most men take off their boots and put on their slippers when they get home, and they abdicate that responsibility. You can't do it, men. You cannot abdicate being the spiritual leader. You are the spiritual leader, and it will define what you do. I want you to take this other chart real quickly. I've been thinking about this for several years. I finally got it down and with the help of, of Luke and Joel and Carolyn and some others. 
what does it mean then to launch responsible Christ followers as son and daughters? I want you to notice the things in the corners there. Faith, hope, and love. That's talking about the heart of a child. A heart of a teenager. A faith that is biblically rooted. Hope that is gospel-centered. And love that is Christ-like. That's what I want for my kids and grandkids. That's what I want for them. And when you have that kind of faith, it affects your belief, their salvation, having a foundation, they're owning their faith, they're growing and they're sharing their faith, they're developing their spiritual disciplines, they're being a disciple, and then they're thinking that their thinking is now being controlled by biblical truth and biblical values, and they know how to interact with other belief systems with a Christian worldview, they know how to do critical thinking and ask the right questions, and they develop wisdom in decision-making. When you have gospel-centered hope, you get an eternal perspective in terms of a life purpose like Joel was talking about last session. You get a vision for your life and your, your stewardship of your life. You understand your calling and a career and ministry and your self-awareness of your strengths and weaknesses. And when you have a Christ-like love, it develops your character with the fruit of the Spirit in your moral formation, handling temptation, testing, and failure. And, and you have Christ-like love, you have relationships characterized by servanthood and respect with your family and friends, dating and marriage, with the world, with work and government. Man, I want you to know, this is what I'd like to see teenagers looking like when they're 18 years old, ready to face the world. But you know what the reality is? In our culture today, matter of fact, it's coming out in the media in the last couple weeks, a senator from Nebraska has been writing about this and saying, what we have now is we have just elongated adolescence well into the 20s. And, and just basically sons and daughters that have never learned to be responsible. Well, whose fault is that? We're going to simply say, I'm not one of those who's going to simply say, well, it's just a bad generation. No. A whole lot of reason why you have elongated adolescence today is because of fathers that are not being fathers in the home. And so they're not being shaped by dads in the home spiritually. But you show me a dad that does that, 170 men here, if 170 men wind up being this kind of father and this kind of grandfather, guess what? Sons and daughters will be leaders tomorrow because no one else will know how to lead. And they'll be leaders in the church and leaders in business and leaders in medicine and leaders in education and leaders in government. Why? Because they have been shaped by fathers. What does it look like? You give me a young person that looks like this, they're ready to take on the world for Christ. I dream of a day that this characterizes the teens that are coming out of our church and heading off to college, not to figure out what they're going to do with their life, to go like an arrow after what God's called them to do in their life. That's what I long to see. Guys, I, at a college campus, I saw students changing majors three to four times at huge expense to parents and time. You know why? Because they had no clue what they were good at. And I asked the question, whose responsibility is that? Don't you dare abdicate that to the school or to the church. Because God never gave the ultimate responsibility to the school or to the church for your kids. He gave it to you. And when the fathers step up, sons and daughters are strong in spirit, and they go out and they make a difference in the world. They make a difference in the world. So when you look at that, I, I dream of that. I dream of that. Here's another thing. So encourage them with your words. Here, here's some things you can say to them. I'm going to change this a little bit. So you spend time with them. You encourage them with their words. You tell them that you love them. You tell them that you love them. And I don't use the word proud. That's uh, what the notes had for this, and I'm going to tell you, give you another word. I've never told my kids I'm proud of them. I don't, if maybe you're going to do that. I don't. I, I don't find the word pride used in a good way in the Bible. So I have a substitute for you. I am grateful for you. And I would tell them I am grateful for them about their character and their accomplishments. I would tell my kids regularly, I, I thank God for you, and here's why. So my kids never heard me say I'm proud of you. Because I don't want to boost up pride in them. I want them to walk humbly with God. So I've always told them, I'm grateful for you. Now, you may not be hung up on that. I, I just, for me, it was an issue. I don't want to use a word towards my kids that the Bible uses in such a negative way. 
So I tell my kids, I'm grateful for you. You see, gratitude is different than pride because gratitude is a grace reflection. The word gratitude is based on the Greek word for grace, and it's simply saying, I see God's grace at work in you, and I want to celebrate it. That's what it means. That's what it means. So spend time with them. Encourage them with your words. Tell them that you love them. God the Father in Matthew 3.17 said to his son from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do your kids know that you're pleased with them? Do you just catch them doing something wrong and never catch them doing something right? It's, it's very, very important you catch them doing something right. And you emphasize that. By the way, if you have young children, you're going to learn this. Young children have learned that bad attention is better than no attention. So they will misbehave to get dad's attention rather than have no attention. A child will misbehave sometimes just to get attention because bad attention for bad behavior is better than no attention from dad. So, man, as you look at this, here's the last thing I want to say. Pray for them regularly. Pray for them regularly. Pray for your children. I have a prayer list for each of my kids, even though they're adults and married, and I have a prayer list for, each, for my grandkids, and I pray over them. You see, I, I think God's called me to represent Jesus Christ in their life as a spiritual leader. Man, as we, as we focus um, in just a few moments on some of the discussion that we're going to have here at your tables, I want to just pray right now and ask God to challenge your heart to be God's kind of father or God's kind of grandfather. You don't stop being a dad when your kids leave home. For every Monday night in the last five years, I've had a meeting with some of my grandsons to teach them. And if you have that opportunity, go for it. Some of you are grandfathers. You say, man, that time has passed. No, it's not. No, it's not. The great thing about being a grandpa is you get to see the headlights and you get to see the taillights. <laughs> and you get to pour into their lives and they think you're best things in sliced bread because you're not the disciplinarian, but you're, they want to be mentored by grandparents. Father, we would believe that you could raise up fathers in this church who know what it is to love and to teach their children, to be leaders in their home that are Christ-like, that speak God's truth like a prophet, that pray over them like a priest, that lead and serve and protect them like a king. Because, Lord, that's just what you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, I want you to take a few minutes at the table and talk about what we've been talking about here and some of the discussion questions that are there. Take, a, take about 10 minutes to do that, please. I hope one of the primary things that you've taken away, especially if you're new here to Chapel Point, is that we're desperate for people to be desperate for God. We're desperate for people to be desperate for God. Because we know that that's the real answer. And so as we have an opportunity to pray together tonight, um, even th I want you to think about, in this church, average number of kids per family, something like 15. So um, the Trogers bring that up a couple, but... I mean, literally, I mean, there's probably 450 to 500 kids represented in this room right now. It changed the schools. So I'm going to invite you to stand up. Leave your stuff where it is. I'm going to invite you to circle this room. Look inward. One of the most important things that we mentioned this evening was accountability. Because in order to have the courage to put on some spiritual shoes, in order to have the courage to be the husband, the, the father that you need to be, you need accountability. You need to be receptive to it. I encourage people all the time, I encourage you all the time to invite accountability in. 
invited. Hey, what do you see in my life that needs to look different, that needs to taste different? What is that? And the men in this room, guys, especially if you're new here, let me tell you, the men in this room, they will fight with you. They will fight with you. If you come to one of these men, and if you come to me and go, Pastor Joel, I need someone to hold me accountable. I need a mentor. I need somebody to partner with me. I want to put on some spiritual shoes. I promise you that we will find a man who wants to stand beside you and to support you and to fight with you. Don't, do not cop out when God is speaking to you. got them right here this is we we've, this is about half of the men in this church this is only half of us I, I say if if he used 12 I say let's let's let him use 170 of us amen God I pray for these brothers. God, I think about the, the somewhat of a circle that we're forming right now. And it's just, I think about the power of what it is if we were to, to bind ourselves together to the virtue of Jesus Christ. And if we proclaim together that we would be committed to you, that we would really start to put on some spiritual shoes and to be the fathers and the husbands and the friends, the examples that we need to be in order to bring glory to you. Glory to you, God. I don't want to just bring attention to you. I want to bring glory to your feet and heap it there. I want it to mound up so that it just oozes out of every part of our lives, that it just mounds up in a way that we can't contain it because it's so marvelous, it's so wonderful, it's so great. God, encourage these men and let them know that no matter how much resistance they may have at home, no matter how much resistance they may have at work, you are greater. Encourage them, God. Give them the hope that comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus, Messiah. Encourage them, O oh Lord, as we put on some spiritual shoes in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We love you guys. We appreciate you guys. We're here for you guys. We will see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. I'm just kidding. Just seeing if you're listening. 8 o'clock, we'll see you then. Lots of great food. We'll conclude by 11, so you'll have all day to go love on those kids. Take care.